We do praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We praise you, triune God, that you have poured out your grace upon us so that we might then pour ourselves out on behalf of the vulnerable of the world. Thank you that you have disclosed yourself to us through your word. And we pray now that you would pour out your spirit upon the reading and the preaching of the word of God, that we might not just hear what your word has to say to us and understand it, but that, so that we could respond to it with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. I want to welcome uh, one of our elders, Lasuela Donaldson, to read our scripture passage for today. Our scripture reading today is Ruth chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She said to him, Why have you found such favor in your eyes that you may notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you yet left your father and mother, your homeland, and came to live with a people you do not know before. May the Lord repay you with what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. So grateful that all of you are here and just want to say welcome to you. I think it is well understood and accepted universally by all children everywhere throughout history and around the world today that of all the games that children play, tag is the best one. Don't you agree? Uh, any children in the house tonight might agree with me on that, that tag is the best game. It's actually a weird game if you think about it because here you are standing there with a group of your friends and suddenly one of them becomes it and their hands and arms become these poisonous threats reaching out to all the others and all the other kids go running away screaming their heads off, right? Now, one of the great controversial and much debated aspects of the game of tag throughout history has been the concept of base. You know what I'm talking about, base? Now, base, base I, I'm pretty sure that every game of tag that I ever played at some point at the end devolved into conflict with an argument about base. Now, I actually did sort of some informal um, survey work among children the last few days to talk to them about their own concepts of base, and I'm telling you, the opinions vary widely about the proper use of base in the game of tag. Um, some kids say that um, you can only stay on base for 10 seconds, and then you have to run. Other kids say that you can only use base 10 times in a game. That seems like kind of a lot to me. Um, other kids say that, um, you, you, that certainly that it 
cannot guard the base. I, I'm pretty sure that's an inc you know, incontrovertible principle on the rule of base. Don't you, don't you agree with that? You know, it can't guard base. One kid even said, when I asked him about base, he said, oh, I don't use base. That's for rookies, right? <laughs> so <laughs> this kid just like rejected the whole concept of base entirely. Um, I think whatever your understanding of the concept of base in the game of tag, we can all agree um, that base is important because it is a place of safety. It represents uh, the safe place where you can come and be protected from it that roams around with threatening, menacing hands, right? It's a safe place. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, we are in the fifth week in our sermon series in the book of Ruth, and this is the question that we're asking week by week. In our world, in a world of suffering and chaos and division and violence, Anyone debate that that's the world that we live in? In the world that we live in, what does it mean for us, the people of God, to be people who love like God? What does it mean for us not to be marked by all the polarizing propensities of the society around us? What does it mean for us, Third Church, to, to be marked instead by hesed love? The Hebrew word hesed means steadfast, covenant love. It's the theme of this book of Ruth. What does it mean for us to be marked by love? And what are the marks of that love? We've seen that love suffers, that love commits, it makes promises, that it endures, uh, it works even at great cost to itself. And today, we're looking at this second chapter, which the theme is that love protects, that love protects the vulnerable ones in society. You know, at its best in history, the church was a sanctuary. It was literally a sanctuary. That's why we call this space the word we do. It was, of course, the place that the people of God worship, but it was also a sanctuary, a refuge, a base, if you will, for people in the world that were under threat, that they were being chased. Beginning in the seventh century in England, churches were protected by what were called sanctuary laws. In fact, if you go to England today in some of the oldest parishes, you can see two posts sitting in the front of the church that are called sanctuary posts. And if someone was running and fleeing, a, a criminal, a refugee, someone who was running from a threat of any kind, once they crossed the post, they were safe, they were at base. So at its best, the church has literally been a sanctuary for the vulnerable, unprotected ones in the world. And that's what our theme is for the text today. Still, we see through this text, we see the whole Bible, that the call of the church is to be a people in a place who protect the vulnerable. To be a people in a place who offer safety for those who are under threat in our very dangerous world. And so I just wanna look at two simple themes from this text with you today. The first, the need to protect. This world is a violent and, and threatening place for many of the people around us. And second, the call to protect. What are the God's people called to do in response to the people who are vulnerable in the world, okay? So first, let's look at the need to protect. Here in this chapter, and in any, many other places in the Bible, God makes it clear that there are people in our world who are under great threat of harm. This world is a dangerous place for many, can we say many billions in our world Today. Now, it's not supposed to be this way. We know we often talk here at Third about how God made the world good. He made it a place, what we call shalom, a place of flourishing and wholeness, a place of justice and love, a place where no man, no woman, no child should ever feel worry or under harm of any danger or any threat of any kind. But unfortunately, this is not the world we have. We have a world that because of my sin and yours has been shattered. 
And because of that sin, there are many people in our world, certain people have less power, less advantages, and they're under greater threat and strain because of the shattering of shalom. The Old Testament often talks about what scholars sometimes call the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable. You can read about this in Exodus 22. It indicates that sort of broad categories of people who are the most vulnerable and unprotected ones in the world. The quartet includes first aliens and immigrants because they lacked property and citizenship and direct involvement in the judicial process. It includes widows who lacked a husband. In an ancient society, it meant they lacked any kind of direct legal representation of any kind and were not protected by a man. Uh, Third, orphans who lacked parents and supportive family structure and could easily be forced into labor or slavery. And then finally, the poor who lacked social power and often did not have uh, the connections they needed to represent themselves in court or in society. Now, here's, here's what's so striking about our text is that it's really clear in the way that the narrator tells this story is that Ruth actually represents all four of these vulnerable persons. She's an alien. She's an immigrant from Moab. Did you hear how often? Five times in the text, he says, she's a Moab from Moab. She's a Moabite from Moab. That's like saying he's a Richmonder from Richmond. I mean, we get it, guy, okay? He is emphasizing very clearly that this is a refugee who is vulnerable to prejudice and even racial discrimination. She is a widow. Hear how that was mentioned in the text? Widow, being a young accompanied woman with no male to protect her. She was an orphan. Did you hear what Boaz said? You left your mother and father. She is detached from her family tribe with no clan to surround her, and she was poor. She was a gleaner. That was the left for the poor to do. Nothing to her name, no way to provide for herself. Paul Miller says that if you drew a ladder of social hierarchy of all the many people, the members of that ancient society, Ruth was at the very bottom, below male servants, below female servants. She's at the very bottom. Without male protector, she's vulnerable to attack and molestation. Without money, she's financially destitute. Without family, she's isolated, at risk. Without country, she's open to prejudice and exclusion. So here's Ruth, right? Bottom of the social ladder, height of vulnerability, the, the, most, the person in greatest risk, and she comes up upon the scene entering into the community of Israel, and the question that the narrator wants us to ask is this, what will God's people do with this vulnerable person? What are God's people going to do when the most vulnerable person shows up? That's the question of this text. And I want you to know, this is not just a question of this text or the book of Ruth. This is a question that is asked throughout the Bible from the Torah to the Psalms, to the prophets, to the gospels, to the epistles, to the book of Revelation. All, the whole Bible is asking that question. What are God's people going to do? when the most vulnerable among them shows up in their midst. Put it a different way, how are we gonna know if we are successful as a church? You know, I get, I, it's funny when you're a pastor, you get all these like, I'm sure you do get this in your job, but I get all these like emails every day and mailings and invi- invitations to conferences promising success for my church. You know, like, it, you, if you go to this thing or do this thing or have this program or whatever, it's going to be amazing. And in all of these things, success is defined by three Bs. You know what they are? Buildings, budgets, and bottoms. That's what it is. It's how big your building is, how awesome it is. It's how huge your budget is, and it's how many bottoms are sitting in your pews. That's how the American church defines 
success. You know how God defines success for his church? How well the vulnerable are protected. That's how God defines it. He says it, Isaiah 58, is this not the kind of fast and the worship that I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? That's the question that God is asking. What are my people gonna do when the most vulnerable show up among them? That's success, God says. Friends, that's the need to protect. This world is a shattered and dangerous place and there are literally billions who are under threat of terrible harm. What are we gonna do? And the answer is, according to the book of Ruth, we protect. God's people protect the vulnerable. It's the overwhelming answer, and we do it not just because it's the nice thing to do, but because it's what God does. Over and over again, God identifies himself in scripture as the one who protects the vulnerable of the earth. Now, I went to a conference, I spoke at a conference last week, or a retreat last week, and whenever you speak at something like this, somebody gets up before you and they introduce you. And they said, you know, this is Corey. He's a, he's a pastor. He's in Richmond. You know, he, he's, a, he has a, he's a father. He's a husband. They say things about me. They, they say, what are the most significant defining characteristics and activities that define my personhood? That's what an introduction is. So how striking is it that when God is introduced in Scripture, he is often introduced, as he is in Psalm 68, father to the fatherless, defender of widows. You know, when God is at a cocktail party and everyone's like shaking hands saying, I'm so-and-so and I do this, God says, hello, I am the triune God. I am the protector of the oppressed. Nice to meet you. This is who God is. This is how God introduces himself. And in fact, Jesus, his first public sermon, you know, he gets up, he could choose any book in the whole Old Testament, any passage, and he opens it up to Psalm 61 and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom for those who are oppressed. He shuts the scroll, stands up for the sermon, and he says, this is about me. This is who I am. This is how God introduces himself. Theologian Vinoth Ramachandra points out how scandalous this is, that in nearly all the ancient cultures of the world, the power of the gods was channeled through the rich and the elites and the powerful of society. But to, and to oppose them was to oppose God. But in Israel, it's the opposite. God identifies with the weak and the poor and the widow and the powerless, and to come against them is to come against God. So, for instance, like Exodus 21, listen to this. Exodus 21, verse 21. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner among you. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Whoa, right? Not the kind of thing you write in calligraphy and hang on your powder room wall. Not that verse. God says, if you come against me, I will hear their cry and I'll come after you. So this is the very heart of the character of God, to be a God of justice, to stand on behalf of the oppressed and to protect the vulnerable of the earth. And we see God doing that in this story in the book of Ruth. We see him in his sovereignty and providence leading Ruth into the fields of Boaz. It just so happened she ended up there. He's orchestrating and overseeing seemingly random events, giving Ruth favor with the field managers, tenderly protecting them from harm. It's like Boaz says in verse 12, God is the one who is covering Ruth with his sheltering wings. Don't you love that image? God's like this sheltering bird protecting this vulnerable little bird. From, from the harms and the threats of the world. God 
protects. This is who he is. And not only that, it's not just God who protects, it's Boaz who protects. God acts to protect through the hands, the mercy, the justice of his people. His people are the agents, the instruments of his protecting kindness. Look with me at Boaz, will you? Boaz shows up in his fields. Just, just picture the scene in your mind. Boaz shows up in his field. He, he, he sees this immigrant gleaner. He is utterly in contrast to Ruth. He is the person of great power, great authority. He's at the very top of the social ladder. He is a powerful landowner. He has all the wealth, all the resources. He holds all the cards. And he shows up in this field and he sees this foreign immigrant gleaner. And everybody is thinking, what's the strong man going to do? What's he going to do? It could go either way. Is he going to treat her with kindness and generosity? Is he going to mistreat her, take advantage of her? What is he going to do? And I'll tell you what Boaz does. He protects. He hears Ruth's story. He learns that she is a foreign widow at work in the fields, and he immediately sees the high degree of risk that she is under. And he acts, look at the way he acts. He doesn't just say, oh, sure, Ruth, you can, you can stay here and glean in my field for a bit. No, look what he does. Look at with me at verse 8 and 9. He says, don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with my people. Do you see how emphatic he is? He's like, do not leave this field. You go somewhere else, you could get hurt. Stay here. He surrounds her with his people. And then verse 8, on top of this, he informs her that he has charged the young men in the field not to literally, this is actually kind of a PG-13 text. Um, it would have raised some eyebrows. Because the word he literally uses in the Hebrew is molest. He says, I told him, young man, not to molest you. Being a young, unprotected woman, he knows the threat that she's under for sexual and physical violence. And he quickly makes it clear to these other men, you mess with her, you mess with me. You got a problem with her, you can roll. You don't have to work for here anymore. He has said to her, he's saying to Ruth, this is a safe place. Here, base. It's base for you. Sanctuary refuge. Why does Boaz do this? Well, contrary to the mythology of this book, it is highly unlikely at this point that Boaz has any idea of marriage or romantic interest in Ruth. He responds this way, as we see in verse 12, because he loves Yahweh, because he has the heart of God within him. He sees a person at the height of vulnerability, and he does everything he can to respond with the heart of God. Now, let me say this as an aside, okay? Remember that the book of Ruth takes place in the time of the judges. Y'all remember that? Remember, have, you, have any of you ever read the book of Judges? It is not a fun read. The only good thing about Judges is when it's over. That's the best thing about Judges. Judges was a time when there was chaos and terror and horrific violence going on in Israel, and often that violence was enacted against women. The book of Judges is full of men abusing their power and hurting vulnerable people, especially women. Read Judges 19. Don't read it with your children, and you'll see what I'm talking about, right? And that violence was often overlooked and accepted and, and even excused. And in contrast to this, and as a polemic against those behaviors, the narrator of Ruth holds up an example of a very different kind of man, a man of great power and authority who uses his strength not to abuse, but to protect. Now listen, you've got to be living in a hole in the ground if you are not aware that everybody in our society is asking this question of how powerful men are using their power. You ever heard of like hashtag me too? 
It's this thing, you know, on Twitter. You can look it up later. I want you to know that I am addressing this, not because I'm trying to make any kind of statement about Kavanaugh or any other powerful man that has been in the press these last couple of weeks. I am not wading into the partisan carnival of ideological dysfunction that is our national life right now. I'm not going there. You understand that? I am talking about this because it is right here in this text staring us in the face. Ruth is under threat from the abuse of men, plain and simple. Three times in chapter two, it's mentioned that Ruth needs protection from men. Out in the lonely field, she's all by herself, she's on her own, no man, no husband, no father, no son as her protector. She's completely vulnerable. She, she, as an immigrant, the risk is only heightened. In fact, this happens all the time today. It's an epidemic of exploitation among migrant workers, even today. And yet this particular man, the most powerful man among them, chooses to use his power not to harm, but to protect, not to satiate his lust, not to indulge his desires, but to steward his privilege to provide a place of safety for a woman at risk. And in doing so, not only does he free her from intense psychological pressure, I mean, look at verse 10. She like collapses with relief. She's been living under such pressure. And he secures her safety, and then he honors her as a person made in the image of God. Look at verse 11 and 12. He publicly praises her as an example of hesed. He honors her as someone who has something powerful to contribute and even emulate among his people. He recognizes her dignity publicly in front of his field hands. And I, and I just want to speak to, to, to the men for a moment, if you'll permit me. Man, I want us to see that this is a model of masculinity marked by hesed. It is a masculinity that not only seeks to protect vulnerable people, but honors the dignity and the worth of women. We do not live in ancient times, but look, I've got four daughters. I have a wife, I have a mother. And we know that women still live every day with the knowledge that abuse and victimization or even just plain stupidity are always a possibility every single day. We know that one-fifth to one-third of all American women have experienced some kind of traumatic experience. And even higher numbers have experienced harassment, objectification, or worse. Still today, friends, the greatest threat to women is men in power. And we do damage to women, men, when we dismiss fears, or when we trivialize the issue, or we brush the concerns away, when we buy or look at porn, we are fueling the market of exploitation that indirectly affects the women around us. We do harm to women when we ignore them, when in our places of work we silence their voices, or when we do not honor their place at the table and see them as equal image bearers. That's not Hesed. Hesed is constantly seeking to protect, to shelter, to dignify, to honor, to include, and to bless. And here in the book of Ruth, we see a vision of what people, especially men in power, can do, can actually do to create places of safety where the vulnerable can be protected and where people can be free of strain and fear and where women can be honored and recognized for their God-given dignity and can powerfully contribute to God's story the way Ruth does. So let's work hard, third family. Let's work hard to do this, to not just be a place where we use our power not for harm, but for good, but to be a place of safety for women who have undergone trauma and for painful experiences can be listened to and believed and trusted and taken seriously and brought into paths of healing and where men and women together as equal 
co-heirs of life in Jesus Christ can work together like Boaz and Ruth to contribute to the work of God's kingdom. Let's work to do that together, family. So we've seen these two things. We've seen the need to protect, that the world is really a dangerous place for many people. And that second, we've seen the call to protect, that God's people are called to be agents of God's protecting kindness. So in close, what should we do in response to this word? Well, I just want to say that we should be like Boaz and do two things, see and act. See and act. It is a remarkable thing that Boaz, despite his power and status, he saw this vulnerable person. Look what Ruth says in verse 10. You took notice of me. How is it, she said, that you took notice of me? Hesed love sees the unprotected, sees the vulnerable, is always scanning and searching and looking for those that may need protection from harm. And this is not easy in our world. Wealth and power elevate and separate. You know, in the ancient times, there were no zoning laws, no interstates, no subdivisions. Rich and poor lived among one another. You couldn't really help but see and interact with the vulnerable. But these days, that's not the case. Whole neighborhoods sometimes are built to avoid the poor, to avoid the most vulnerable. Affluence isolates you from vulnerability. This past summer, you know, my family's been living in in the East End of Richmond for 13 years, and we moved this past summer to the West End, and I've already noticed it in myself that I I find myself being totally isolated from the most vulnerable in our city. And I don't like that, and I want to do something about it. God's people are those who see and act on behalf of the vulnerable. It may mean rearranging your life so that you're closer in touch with those who are most vulnerable, the poor, the elderly, the refugee, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan. Do you see these people? There are many people like Ruth, even among us, even in our congregation. There are refugees who have left everything. There were two women from the Congo in the last service. There are, you want, go to the CAC picnic on October 20th. You'll meet about 100 of them. There are widows in our congregation, even young ones, who have lost everything. There are people who are living on knife's edge, and God is asking us, do you see them? Do you see them? And then when we see, we act. We act in simple, ordinary ways, sometimes big, extraordinary ways. We act to protect our neighbors from harm. And we do this together. You can do this as a family, with your kids, with your parish group, with your parish area. You can ask, who are the vulnerable among us? Is there someone who is being harmed that we can move together to protect? Children, kids, there's some of you kids here. You can do this. Do you know that every day in your school there are kids who are being harmed? Some of them are being harmed by their parents. Many of them are being harmed by their classmates, excluded, left out, made fun of. Go after those kids. Do you know that the powerful act of you, kid, I'm talking to you, walk up to another kid and say, hey, you want to eat with me today for lunch? You want to play with me on the playground? Do you know what that is? That is an act of powerful hesed, of seeing the vulnerable and acting on their behalf. We do this communally through ministries like Wednesday night immigrant and refugee tutoring program, like Caritas, when we'll be walking alongside these homeless families. We have a whole orphan and foster care ministry here at church. If you're a family that's considering foster care or adoption, we have many families in the church. Talk to Mike and Missy Murchie. They'll help you walk through the process that they went through in order to do that. We can even do this institutionally. So many of you have been given very significant positions of influence in Metro Richmond, in law, and business, and criminal justice, and education, and government. And I want you to know that God has given you that place of power and privilege, not for your own good, but to act on behalf of the most vulnerable and unprotected in our metro region. 
My friend Don in uh, Winston-Salem, he took over his family's used car business and he realized that they were raking in a ton of money, but they were doing it on the backs of the most vulnerable people in Winston-Salem. And so he scrubbed their entire financial and business model. He stopped uh, the, the uh, hidden sort of price structure of cars. He put his salesmen on salaries to remove any incentive to take advantage of poor customers. Um, he shares the corporate profits with employees. He turns a majority of those profits out to community development in Winston-Salem. Don is always asking the question, in our business, how can we see the vulnerable and act to protect them? How are you doing that with the power that God has given you? This is what God's people do. We see and we act. And this is not a political thing. This is not a red and blue thing. We do not align ourselves with agendas of political parties. We do not allow the world to tell us who we should care about and who we should ignore. We stand for the vulnerable, period. We stand with immigrants. We stand with refugees. We stand with the unborn. We stand with the disabled. We stand with women. We stand with people of color who experience racism and discrimination. We stand with orphans. We stand with the elderly. We stand with widows. We stand with the poor. We stand. There are so many people who are being harmed. And the people of God see them. And we act because we're shelter. We're sanctuary. We're base. That's who we are. That's what we do. Friends, as we come to this table, I want us to remember this, that though our, there are some of us who are more physically vulnerable than other people here. All of us are on the same plane, spiritually. We are all terribly in need of protection. Sin has cut us off from our Father, our protector, and we are all in serious eternal danger. Evil has a mark on our backs. Without grace, you are marked. You're in trouble. You're on the path of destruction. But here's what happened. Jesus Christ, the one at the very top of the ladder, the one with all the power, all the glory, all the privilege, all the authority, he looked down and he saw us. The triune God saw us in our vulnerable, unprotected state. And what did he do? He acted. Oh my goodness, he acted. He left aside all of his power. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being born as into a virgin Mary, and then lived his life as a, a common labor and died in, in excruciating death, taking our sin and sorrow upon himself. He made himself nothing. He took on our pain. He took on our hurt. He took on our shame. He took on our vulnerability to give us his power, to give us his glory, to make us safe in his family, in his kingdom forever. So friends, and you come to this table, I want you, I invite you to receive Jesus Christ as your protector. If you've never received Jesus today, you can do it today at this table. And I want you to know that when you receive Jesus, here's what happens. Jesus says to you, here with me, among me, in my people, you're safe. It's base. It's sanctuary. You're found. You're sheltered. You're protected. You're not going to die. You're going to stand on a new earth with me forever where there will be no hurt and no pain. You can never be let go. He says, here with me, sanctuary, base. So friends, this is our power, this is our motivation because Jesus has done this for us. We may do this for the world. Love protects, love protects, love protects. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus Christ, that you are the one who laid aside your glory to take upon our shame. You laid aside your power to take upon 
are hurt. You laid aside everything that was yours to take upon our sin to give us your righteousness and to include us in the safety of the Trinity, to include us in the safety of your people. Pour out your spirit now upon this table that we might taste your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Global Communion Sunday when people all over the world are celebrating the Lord's table as a sign of our unity with the global church. So would you stand as we confess our common faith with the global and the historic church of Jesus? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. Friends, this is the, sometimes we call this the Eucharist. That means Thanksgiving table. This is the place we celebrate. We don't do anything. We just come and receive the fullness of grace from Jesus. So let's pray Thanksgiving over this table. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who has pursued us even unto death to make us safe. Thank you, Father, that you conspired with the Son and with the Spirit through all eternity to accomplish our salvation for us. And we celebrate it here at this table. Pour out your Spirit upon this bread and this cup that they would today become for us the body and blood of Jesus and then fill us and make us to be the body of Christ for the sake of the world and especially for the sake of the vulnerable of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks for it, he took it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the supper, in the same way, he took the cup. And he poured it out, saying, This is a new covenant in my blood. And whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the one Sunday of the year uh, that we do communion uh, seated, so you don't come forward. And we wait for each other. We do this because of our connection with the global church and with our unity in Christ. And so what I would ask you to do is first you'll receive a piece of bread where you are and hold on to it. It may look very tasty and you want to eat it, but hold on to it and we'll all take it together as a sign of our unity in Christ. And then uh, we'll distribute the cups and again, hold the cup 
until we all take it together. I'll also be coming, walking around with some gluten-free wafers. If you need those for any reason, just signal me and I can hand you one of those. If you're not a Christian today or if you're just seeking the Lord and trying to figure out what you believe, um, we just want to welcome you. You can trust in Jesus Christ today and become a Christian and receive this meal for the first time and tell me about it afterwards. I'll, I'll tell you how to do next steps. Uh, but if you're not comfortable taking it today for any reason, there's some prayers that you can pray um, in the bulletin and you can just kind of let it pass you by and just maybe ask the Lord to show himself to you during this time. So let's remember as we take this that we are celebrating the triumphant grace of the man of heaven for us, uh, the one who saw us in our vulnerable, unprotected state and yet who acted to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, to ascend for us, to rule in heaven for us, to intercede for us, to send the spirit for us, to oversee all things for us, who promises to come again for us. All of this to make us safe in his grace forever. So let's receive that grace today, our servers.